Hello, and thank you for joining the New Life Baptist Church podcast. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you through this platform, and it's our desire that you would have an open heart to receive what the Lord has for you through this message. If you'd like to contact us, please visit our website at newlifecasagrande.com. There you'll find contact information to reach us directly, or if you're local to the Casa Grande area, you'll find information to plan your first visit. If you benefit from this sermon, please share it with a friend or feel free to leave a review. Now, let's get ready to hear what God has for us today. We have, we have launched our year uh, focusing on the word hope. The first Sunday, we defined it. We tried to understand what hope is. It, it's important to recognize where our hope lies. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, it'll be because we look upward and not outward. And, and, and that's really the essence of hope. Last Sunday, we had to answer the question, what is our hope tethered to? You know, it's one thing to say, I hope, but what is that hope connected to? Is there anything sustainable holding up that hope? And we recognize from the book of Hebrews that faith is the substance. It's what is tethered to hope, faith in God and who he is. And we walked through that last week. But there's something about hope that is vitally important, and that is what hope communicates. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. This, uh, two weeks ago, it's been a little less than that, I I had a quick round trip from here uh, to Pensacola, Florida, and back, okay? I left um, early one morning, came back the next day, just a quick round trip, or actually late one afternoon, came back late that night. I flew through um, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, to get there, and I flew back through Houston uh, to, to get back here. When I was in Nashville, I went to get on the plane, and um, I, I guess I just didn't think about it, but um, the college that I'm associated with, Pensacola Christian College, um, they were starting college back that weekend as well. Matter of fact, Reagan left to go back there two days after I got home from this trip. And so I walk onto the plane and sitting in the front row, I recognize this face and he looked up at me and he goes, oh, hey, Pastor Ray. And it was a college student at Pensacola who was flying back from Nashville with me to Pensacola. And he recognized me. I recognized him from camp. We shook, I would have shook hands. We, we, We would have sat together, but nobody wants to see a chubby man sit in that middle seat. You know what I'm talking about? And I was flying Southwest and I'm like, no, I'm not gonna sit right there like this all, all the way. And, uh, and so I took a couple steps and, and went a couple, couple rows back and uh, sat down. Well, onto the plane walks five more college students from Pensacola. And I knew they were because they were wearing like Pensacola Christian College shirts and they were really sharp looking kids. And, and, and so, so, so they're walking on the plane and they're cutting up, man. They're like, yeah, they're laughing. And then they look over as they're walking and they recognize my face. I had just preached there a couple months prior for their opening meetings. And, uh, and so, and man, when they saw my face, what it was like, Boy, they just straightened up. I'm like, come on. I mean, I'm the guy you want to cut up with. I mean, I'm that guy. I'm like, hey, guys, how are you? And I'm waving, and, and they're saying hey and doing that little nervous wave, and going all the way to the back of the plane, away from the preacher man in the front of the plane, right? And I'm like, oh, my word, man, seriously? Uh, coming back, I don't know what happened. I guess in this week span of time, sorry, Melody, because she was hanging out there in Florida too with me. I got, I guess I was getting sick and didn't know it. I started getting this heavy runny nose 
the next day. So I went to the funeral and it got, just kind of got worse throughout the afternoon. And now I'm on the plane and uh, I'm in the Pensacola airport and I'm just like, I don't mean to be gross, I'm like blowing snot. And I went and got a stack of napkins from the Chick-fil-A because not only do they serve great chicken, they have great napkins. I'm just kidding. And uh, so I went and got a, a stack of napkins from Chick-fil-A. And now I, I get on my flight. This time I'm on United. And so United doesn't offer you know, pick your own seat, you get to pick it. And that's where you've got to sit when you get on. And so I sit down at the window, I always get a window. I love window seats. And so I'm sitting out of the window. This lady comes in and she sits in my row, but there's nobody beside us, praise the Lord. Flight takes off. I'm like, you know, I'm just, I'm trying. It is just disgusting. I hate that. I'm now embarrassed. I'm like, I wish I could stop this. I, I wanted to shove it up my nose just to clog it, you know? I was just, that's how embarrassed I was. And she's kind of looking over at me. I'm like, I'm just kind of, I'm just, I'm just like, re I really was embarrassed. And I'm sitting over here and I'm holding my, my nose, trying not to, my nose to run. And I look over and now she has masked up, baby. She has got a mask on. And not only has she masked up, she is sitting at that angle that awkward turning angle from me. I'm over here blowing snot and she's like thinking she's gonna die of some great disease, right? And so she's masked up and she doesn't wanna get sick. And I wouldn't have done that. I felt terrible about it. So we get to Houston and I, I get off the plane. I go to my next gate. I'm away from everybody. I'm just sitting off in the corner waiting to fly on into Phoenix. It's late. It's probably, I don't know, nine something at night. And, and uh, man, this flight's packed. I'm like, oh, this is going to be terrible. I'm like, Lord, please, you know, clear this thing up. This is bad. Well, the flight was delayed. And so everybody, I'm watching the crowd, and, and I like kind of watching people. I'm watching the crowd, and everybody's kind of, you know, they're drinking sodas, eating snacks, playing on their phones, just waiting. But as soon as the announcement came through that this flight was delayed, the, the attitudes changed on a dime. I mean, from jovial to happy to rotten. Um, this one lady was told just simply, oh, ma'am, excuse me, you got to wait in this line, your own group this, and this line's group this. Well, it goes to the same place. Why can't I just stay in this line and walk? Um, she's like, ma'am, don't, just get, get, just get over. And we're, we're all like, just get over. I mean, for crying out loud, right? And um, I mean, it was just a simple delay. Like the crew got in a little bit late and had to change out crews and get the plane ready. And it's like, it's not that big of a deal, right? It, it, it's amazing to me what we communicate when the circumstance around us changes. College students who were jovial, their whole demeanor was changed at the presence. Can I use the word I'm not theirs, but of authoritative figure? You know, a, a woman's whole enjoyment of a flight changed as she heard sniffles. A, a, a whole waiting area, not everybody, but so many people's attitude and demeanor changed um, just because a flight was slightly delayed. There, there's never been a greater time to communicate who we are than right now. And, and what the scriptures are going to teach us is that what we communicate should not have uh, any bearing on what is surrounding us. Hope must be communicated. There's no way around the fact that if we're going to influence a generation for Christ, it's going to come through what we communicate based upon the hope that lies within us. So in 1 Peter, we 
we need to get some background information about this passage, okay? When it was written, when Peter penned this letter, it is, it is said that he was hiding on the outskirts of Rome itself. And what was happening in Rome is this. Nero is now in power. He's ruling with an iron fist. Nero doesn't like the way the city at that time of Rome looked. And so he decided it is said to burn it to the ground. Nero wanted to burn the city to a ground, wipe it clean and rebuild a city that reflected him. And so he did just that. He did not recognize um, the, the distress it would cause among the people of Rome who lived there. They're now getting angry because their temples have been burned and their gods have been destroyed and their livelihood has been uh, now lying in ashes and they are mad and they are angry and they're beginning to turn their attention to Nero, wondering if it was some kind of conspiracy that Nero has burnt the city to the ground to build himself up a great nation. And so Nero needed a scapegoat. Nero needed someone to blame. How easy would it be to blame the people we already kind of dislike? There's this band of people who are calling themselves Christ followers. They're connected to those Jewish people. And the Romans despised the Jews. And so anybody connected to the Jewish people would make a great enemy. And so Nero in that time began to proclamate and proclaim that the Christians were responsible for the burning down of Rome. And at that moment, persecution starts like never before. The stoning of Stephen, child's play. Now they're taking girls, Christian girls or Jewish girls, and they're turning them upside down, tying their ankles and running it through a post with the hole at the top and setting them afire, starting with their hair, to be the lighting for the games of Rome. Instead of the pregame show being a musical concert, for the sake of persecution, and I'm not trying to get gory, they take the Christians that they have captured, they bring them into the arena and they set them up for a fun time of target practice or to release the animals on to come out and to eat them while they're alive. The persecution of the church has begun and it's vicious and it's hard and it's difficult. Peter writes this letter and says there's hope. He writes a letter and for the first couple of chapters, he's reminding them of who they are in Christ. And by the way, there's nothing more important in this day when difficulty comes to, to simply be reminded of who we are in Jesus. But then he gets to chapter three and the word finally is used. We're finally at a point in this letter where I'm gonna give you some instruction based upon what you're going through. And church, can I pause right here to say this, that we're not necessarily suffering persecution like the, the, the Christians of Nero's day are. By the way, there are Christians who are suffering like that right now. There are people in foreign lands that are literally suffering, being beheaded, being tortured because they 
they name the name of Christ. We, we understand that. It's on the news. But we as Americans, not necessarily pressured from the outside physically, but it has begun and it is intensifying where we are pressured mentally. We are pressured spiritually. We are pressured culturally. And I do not today want to make a comparison between what the Christians of Rome were going through and the intensity of that and to what we are going through. But I am saying this, persecution is real. Hardship is real. Trouble is real. It hurts. It's, it's weighty. It, it, it sometimes is very difficult. And we as God's people must be able to proclaim hope when it seems like there's no hope. How do we communicate it? How is hope communicated from the child of the king? And this is what this passage is all about. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and let's begin reading together at verse number 8. Finally, chapter 3, 1 Peter, verse number 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind. Uh, by the way, before I go any further, the, the, the phrase here, one mind, means singularly minded. It's not that Paul is saying we need to be single-minded on the color of carpet. That's not it. We need to be singularly minded on what the cause is, what the, what the battle's all about, who sits on the throne. Be single-minded, be of one mind, the Bible says, having compassion. Jesus had compassion. Love as brethren, Jesus loved be pitiful. The word pitiful just means tender-hearted. Jesus was tender-hearted. Be courteous. The word courteous just means friendly. Jesus was friendly. Be single-minded on who we are and who Jesus is. Notice what it says next. Not rendering. I like the word rendering. It just simply means in our vernacular, it means not dishing out evil for evil. That, that is the way the world acts. Hey, you do me wrong, I'm gonna do you wrong. But let me tell you something, it's never in the economy of a Christian. And when you do that, you're acting in the flesh. You're not acting like a child of the king. The child of the king does not respond the same way based upon the circumstances that's around them. So, so Paul says, hey, be like Jesus. Be singular on who Jesus is. He loved us. He was friendly. He was tenderhearted. He was compassionate. Don't, don't dish out evil for evil. Notice what the Bible says. And railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. And here's why. Watch the text. I love the Bible. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Well, what the text is saying is recognize who you are. Recognize the blessing that's been given to you. You were given forgiveness. You were given eternal life. You were given kindness. You were given love. You were given compassion. And so when it feels like everything's falling in, don't render evil for evil. Don't dish out what you're being dished, but rather live to how you are called to live. Separated under Christ. What a powerful thought. He is trying to help them to see, I get it, it's hard. Your sibling may have been ripped away from you and carried away and tortured in the Colosseums. That's awful. 
You have may seen your pastor taken from you as you all worship together in the catacombs and he was ripped out from among you and he is being tortured. I understand that. But we're not gonna dish out what has been dished to us. Why? Because we have hope. There's a greater hope involved here. Notice, notice several things I want us to see this morning. Number one, hope communicated. It's communicated through, the Bible says, correct expectations. You want to know why it's so hard to communicate hope? It's because our expectations are wrong. You ever had your expectations in someone only to have those expectations dashed? Well, I thought he was better than that. I thought she knew better than that. Only to find out that they're human too. And, and here's what the word of God is literally saying. It's not our responsibility to render evil for evil or wrong for wrong. It is our responsibility to do something different. Notice what the Bible says here in verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from that, the Bible says, they speak no guile. Let him eschew. The word shoe means to turn away from. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Why? I love this. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their cries. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Your expectation in man should be low. Sinners do what sinners do. Humans do what humans do. We are a broken people, whether forgiven by God or not. So, so when, when, when dip, by the way, by the way, just for the context of this passage, um, it's not referring to necessarily brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? Um, can we make an application as brothers, sisters in Christ for, for, to, to this passage, not to render evil for evil, but to be honest, in this moment, it was expected, they're not gonna do that, they're Christians. That's not what it's referring to. It's referring to the persecution that comes from the outside and the hope to be communicated to those who are, who are without Christ. That's the point of this passage. And so when my expectations are in things and people and moments and situations, it affects my hope. It affects my joy. But when my expectation is in the fact that Jesus' eyes are on me and he's the one that blesses the good and then does uh, renders uh, uh, punishment to the evil, it is, it is up to God. It's not up to me. Boy, that changes my perspective here. The Bible says this, right expectations produce right relationships. Right expectations produce right relationships. When my expectation is understandably clear concerning someone, then it really helps that relationship, right? Fair enough? I know some of you in here cannot sing. You couldn't carry a tune, not only in a bucket, but you couldn't carry a tune in the back of a dump truck. I, I get that. I understand that. When you sing, it is not beautiful. It is a noise, Okay, and I, we, some of us will debate even if it's joyful, okay? And, uh, but, but I'm glad that you're singing, right? All right, and so, so it would be wrong of me to take some of you who cannot carry a tune in a bucket and ask you to be on our worship team and then expect you to carry that note. 
That would be a wrong expectation that would create conflict in, a, in, in the relationship, right? So, so when our expectations are right, it helps the relationships. And it's so important to recognize that sinners are lost and they're on their way to a place called hell and they don't have God living inside of them and they do not care about your God and who you are. And they don't mind persecuting and talking bad about you at work. And as a coworker, I know you expect you to be buddy-buddy, but without Jesus, how can they even begin to do what is correct? And when that persecution comes... And we have wrong expectations of them. And our expectations are not in Christ. Then there's no way we can communicate hope. But hope can be communicated when our joy is found in Jesus and not in people. Another thought, right expectations produce real joy. I love the way he says, be not afraid, neither be troubled. Don't be afraid. What do you mean don't be afraid? We're being tortured. Don't be troubled. What do you mean don't be troubled? Because God says, I've, I've got this. I am in control. Titus chapter two, verse 13 says, looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, our great God, Jesus Christ. You and I have that opportunity to look beyond the moment to expectations to be in Christ and not here in this life. Notice the text again in verse number 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. He is watching. He knows where you're at. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you're going through. It's communicated through a correct expectation. Are your eyes on Jesus? Are your expectations upon him and what he can do? If that is so, it, it, it reciprocates in what you're gonna do, right? When I see how big Jesus is, it, it comes back to reflect in what I'm gonna be. Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 15, verse four. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written, ready? This is a beautiful verse. I want us to, can, can we throw this one up on the screen? If you have your Bibles, open the word of God to Romans 15, four, but if not, we'll show it to you on the screen. Ready? For whatsoever things were written aforetime. So, 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 so what does that mean? All the things that were written before, what would that be referring to, church? All the things written aforetime are what? The word of God, the things that we hold in our hand. Watch this. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our what? Our learning. Everything God has given to us in scripture was written for you and me to know and to learn. Why? Look at the next thing. That we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. When I'm going through something, woe is me, life is terrible, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm a, I'm a failure. Well, for crying out loud, go put on a purple suit with a tail and we'll call you Eeyore. Okay, because that has produced no hope. I might as well quit. Nobody cares. I might as well just throw up the towel. It's not worth it anyway. 
No, no, the Bible says when we are in the need of comfort, notice what the text says. The whole Bible was written for your learning so that, so that through patience and comfort of what? The scriptures, we might find hope. Hey, child of God, here's what the text is literally saying. When persecution comes, we don't render evil for evil but rather we eschew it is the word. It's the old English word, which means we turn aside from it and we run to the scriptures. I don't understand. I just don't understand when Christians are hurt by other people, why you run to the world's way of dealing with it instead of to scripture. It has no place among us. The Bible says if we're going to show hope in the workplace, if we're going to show hope to our children, if we're going to show hope to our church and the people around us, then, then we don't follow the world's pattern. This becomes our hope, the word of God. And, and, and it just oozes all over us. My dad called me yesterday and he said, hey, you want to hear a funny joke? I'm like, dad, I always want to hear a funny joke. He said, all right. He said, there was this fireman and he was outside the firehouse in his local neighborhood washing his fire truck. The hose was out, the suds were there, the polka-dotted Dalmatian was standing beside it, and he's washing his fire truck when he noticed a little girl down at the end of the driveway, and uh, the girl was dressed in a heavy coat, and she had on a fireman's hat. And beside her was a red wagon, and on the red wagon, there was this ladder that had been tied to the wagon. And in front of the wagon, she had her dog. And she had a rope tied around her dog's chest, harnessed to the wagon. And then beside the dog, there was another rope tied to the wagon, but it was around a cat's neck. And he thought, well, this is interesting. And so he walks to the little girl and he says, good morning. She says, good morning. And he says, I noticed that you're dressed like a fireman. And she says, I love firemen. I'm always watching you here cleaning the truck and then leaving with the sirens on. And he said, well, it's a beautiful setup that you have. I love your hat. She said, thank you. And you got your ladder tied to the wagon. And she's like, yes. And he said, I see that you're, you're pulling your fire truck, your fire engine with your dog. She's like, yes. He says, but I don't understand something. What's up with the cat and the rope tied around the neck? Because if there's a fire, I'm going to pull the rope really tight and that's going to be my siren. Okay, I thought that was great. That's the best use for a cat in that whole scenario. I just laughed and laughed and laughed, right? All that girl did was look, look toward her expectation and she set her expectation in everything the fireman was. And church, to be honest with you, that's, that's us. Our expectation should be to mimic Jesus and the rest of it, we just simply understand is the broken world that we live in. Look at the second thing hope communicates. Hope communicates this. Hope communicated is communicated through personal exaltation. Look at verse number 15 now. The Bible says, but sanctify, honor. The word sanctify means to honor, to set apart the Lord God in your hearts. So now that you know that the world is going to persecute and you cannot react the way the world reacts, but rather you respond based upon Jesus and he, his, his oversight of what is happening, set apart the Lord in your heart. The word sanctify anytime in scripture literally means that. The word sanctify means to set apart. The Bible says we as Christians are what? Sanctified, which means we are set 
apart from the rest of the world. Okay, so, so we understand that word. The same word is true here. It says, sanctify, set apart the Lord in your heart. It means to honor him, to set him up, to give him glory, to make him preeminent. That is, that is hope. People at your workplace need to see that you're, that you're living for something bigger. God's not just a piece of your pie. He's a totally separate pie. And that's how we treat God oftentimes in our lives. God, uh, you're just a part of my life. Here's my God slice, and then here's my work slice, then here's my parenting slice, my sports slice, my activity slice. This is my, oh, oh yeah, there's a slice for bills, and God, you're, you know, God, God is not a slice in our pie. He is preeminent. He is over. He supersedes all of that. And we've got to see that in our mind if we're going to have hope. Because the Bible says when all this pressure comes down, we have to sanctify, set apart the Lord, exalt him for who he is. We serve an amazing big God. Honor him glorify him, have a relationship with him. First Peter chapter 3.18 says this, for Christ also did it. Notice if you would, back to our main passage in 1 Peter 3, a couple of verses down, it's gonna give this example of Jesus. In verse number 18, for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to who? God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus did it for us, did he not? Did not Jesus keep God preeminent, come to this earth and allow people to beat him and put a crown of thorns on his head and, and stripes upon his back and fists to his face so that he might be hung upon a cross to die for our sins, the just died for the unjust. So much so should we, as God's people, exalt him and make him God first. And if we do that, we'll be willing to do whatever God calls for us to do and to go through. What do people see when they see your life? Honestly, would everybody think about that for just a moment? When you're at work or at school, is there any part of you that people recognize is different? Is there any part of you where God is elevated and they see it? He is exalted. He is lifted up. I, I've shared the story here before. It's been a long, long time ago, and I don't even know if it's true. I was told that it was. I was told that a professor of literature at a college had a big, I'm gonna call it a concert, a big program where he was going to quote literature, Shakespeare. He was gonna quote some of his own personal literature. And this would be a time where the crowd would gather, would hear all this literature and, and hear this orator give these, these great, beautiful, resounding, articulate speeches. 
And so he got up and began to quote, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore? I don't know if he did that one, but it's the one that came to mind, right? He quoted some poems that he had personally written. And then at the end, he decided to quote the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. And and when he got done with that poem, the crowds all literally, the story is told, stood to their feet and in thunderous applause for the wonderful job that he did. In order to prove a point to his students that day, he had a a pastor friend of his attend that, that event. He called him to the platform and he introduced him. This is a pastor friend of mine, an older pastor, a seasoned pastor who stood there on the podium and he said, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you quote Psalm 23? And the pastor humbly and willingly said yes. And so at that moment, he began to quote Psalm 23, in which it was said that tears began to roll down the faces of the people. There was no applause. It was quiet. And then he stood back after the pastor got done and he said, the difference is, is I quoted Psalm 23. The pastor knows the writer of Psalm 23. To me, it's just a passage. To him, it's everything. And you have to admit that there's a difference in believers today who radiate and glorify Christ and communicate that with their life and those who are just a part of the game. There's a difference. And if we're gonna communicate hope, what the world needs to see in us is something that is different And that only comes when we elevate Christ. Jesus elevated God and went to the cross. We elevate Christ. We elevate him with our lives. And people see it all the time, or they don't. And and this is just for the sake of illustration, but it hit me this morning based on this message. I walked into Circle K this morning about 535, like I do most every Sunday morning. I grabbed me a cup of coffee, and Josh was working Josh is in there. Matter of fact, Josh will be with us tonight. I, I hope he's going to be there to play ball with us tonight. And, and uh, so me and him talked about basketball for a little bit. He's an Arkansas fan. I'm a Duke fan. And we were just talking back and forth about basketball. I paid for my coffee, grabbed my cup. I turned to go and Josh said this. He said, Pastor, have a good time praying and have a good walk. He knows that when I leave there, I go to our church property every Sunday morning, 5.30, 6 o'clock, and I walk. And two mo- this morning, it was too cold, so I sat in a car with my little cup of coffee, and, uh, but I didn't walk. But a man who doesn't know the ways of God or understand the things of church recognizes that there's a person who's in love with something bigger and is dedicated to follow that. And all of us, as a child of the king, can show that singular purpose and exalt him. Notice what it says thirdly. It's communicated through biblical explanations. Notice notice verse 15 again. The Bible says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. Did everything just get really loud? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what just happened if our sound people are anywhere nearby, but we can't do that. That's too much. And uh, it says, be ready. I'm going to put it up there. Let's hang out up top. They don't, 
that mic here is nothing going on up here. That's the problem. Be ready, the Bible says, to give an answer to every man according to the hope that lies within us. Communicated through biblical, biblical explanation. Notice several things about this passage that I don't want us to miss. We are responsible as believers when trouble comes to give an answer to every man that asks us according to the hope that lies within us. I I want you to see several things about this passage that are just amazing. First of all, it's the word answer. Notice the text, to give an answer. The word answer is the Greek word apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics. The word apologetics is literally defined as this, to give verbal defense. That's what it means, verbal defense. So the Bible says it is up to us to give an answer, an apologia, a verbal defense to every man that asks us according to the hope that lies within us. Where do you place your hope? You should be able to give me a verbal defense. Mac, where do you place your hope? You should be able to reply with a verbal defense. Every Christian, by the way, this is another cool cool point about this passage, is that this passage was not written to the, um, the uh, Rome Baptist College. When, when Peter wrote this passage, he wasn't a professor at Rome Baptist College trying to teach uh, preachers how to proclamate truth. No, this was given to the believer, the average believer who was undergoing persecution at the time. When you undergo pressure and you choose to follow righteousness, you've got to be able to verbally with your mouth give a defense of the hope that lies within you. I've heard people say this, well, my life is the, is the only Bible people will ever read. If I just live right in front of people, they'll see Jesus in me. Yes, and we'll talk about that next. Is, am I good? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that next. But that is not, it's not either, either or, it is both. Every Christian in this room should be able to give a verbal defense, a proclamation of truth to why you believe what you believe. You say, Pastor, I, I, I would be terrified. To, I, I, I don't really know where well, there's only two answers to that statement. Number one, you don't know my Jesus and you've never studied his Bible and heard his story because otherwise you at least know what he did for you upon the cross and how he rose again on the third day. But the second thing is maybe you just haven't studied the word of God. And so therefore, that's not an excuse. It should be a challenge to get into the book so you can give a defense. That's why he said, be ready to give a defense to everyone that asks you. Are you ready? Are you ready to proclaim at work why you're not all defeated by the political landscape right now? When somebody says, hey, are are, are you a little worried about what's going on right now in our politics? And you say, well, I'm honest with you, I'm, I'm not too worried. What do you mean you're not worried? It's horrible. Well, can I, can I give a defense for why I'm not worried? And at that moment, you answer according to the hope that lies within you. 
So, so the Bible is very clear that we have a responsibility to verbally give it, but it's not done. Uh, matter of fact, continue reading with me. This is so cool. Uh, the, the Bible says this, that, that we need to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. The word fear, by the way, let me back up. Doesn't mean I'm scared. It means reverence. With humility and reverence. Having a good conscience. That... Whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. The word conversation is not what's happening here one way. The word conversation, probably in your Bible, some of you are actually, it's actually written, uh, it means manner of living, way of life. So read that verse again with that in mind. Look there in the text again. Here's what it literally means. It means this, having a good conscience that although they're speaking evil against you, the Bible says, and, 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 and rightly so because they are what? They're evildoers. That's what evildoers do. They may be ashamed that falsely accuse you uh, your, of your good conversation, manner of living, your good lifestyle. Your, your words defending the faith and then your lifestyle confirming your faith. Do you get how they work together? Your words defending your faith, your lifestyle confirming your faith. That is what he's saying in this passage. And it's only gonna get tougher and it's only gonna get more difficult and life is only just gonna keep pressing down. But for the child of God, we have hope that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again so we also will live and that his spirit has empowered us to verbally give defense of who we are in Christ Jesus, thereby rescuing people from that life, entering them into the glory of God. And it's confirmed by the, by the way we live. Notice the text. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Guys, if we're gonna suffer, man, I'd much rather suffer because I'm living for Jesus than suffer because I'm doing evil. That just makes sense. If I'm going to get ridiculed, I'd rather be ridiculed for doing right than ridiculed for being evil. The life of the child of God, we have hope, church. And the way we're going to communicate that hope to a world that is broken all around us, the way we're going to tell them that is, is the fact that our hope is um, built upon a correct expectation. It's not that we're being belittling, but I'm just not gonna expect a ton out of you, but I do expect a ton out of who he is. Fair enough. It is personal exaltation. God, you are the center focal point of my life and I lift you up. I set you apart and it's thirdly, Biblical explanation that we give an answer according to the hope and then confirm it through our manner of living. That's how we communicate hope. Do people in your workplace need you to communicate hope? Yes or no? Yes. Hey, hey teenagers in the room, do, do, do the kids in your school need you to communicate hope? Yes. 
Do your buddies that sit around you and, and think that the only joy in life is, is someday growing up and being your own man and partying, do, do they need to know that there's a little more to life, a little more joy and hope than that? Yes, and we have the privilege to communicate that. Hey, um, I, I read this story while I was studying for this passage. One of, the, one of the earliest explorers of South Africa was Bartholomew Diaz. And he was, he was sailing toward the coast of Africa when he came across this cape. And when he approached the cape there in Africa, it was storming. And he, he really literally feared that his ship was going to be dashed upon the rocks and the way that the waves were rocking. And when he finally made his way to shore and he got settled, he named that cape Cape of Storms. Several years later, after he was long gone, another explorer came to the coast of South Africa, and his name was Vasco da Gama. And Vasco da Gama had found that in that Cape area, there were diamonds upon diamonds and jewels. There was just a treasure trove. And so he changed the name of that Cape to Cape of Hope. It's amazing the perspectives, isn't it? When the storms rage around us, the perspectives that we get on life, one guy named it the Cape of Storms, the same spot found to be jewels and plenteous, the Cape of Hope. People who want to make a new life and a new way for themselves can come here and explore and find and get rich. For the child of the king, when the storms rage around us, we ought not to portray the name Cape of Hope, or excuse me, Cape of Storms, but we ought to portray a, something different, right? the cape of hope, the life of hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We've got to communicate it. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people. We want to thank you for joining us on the NLBC podcast today. We hope that God will allow this message to truly make a difference in your life. As you learn more about him and as you study his word, we pray that it will cause you to live out the gospel in a whole new way. Again, if you would like to connect with us, feel free to reach out by visiting our website at newlifecasagrande.com. If you are local to the Casa Grande area, then we would love to have you join us in person. We have services at 8.30 and 11 a.m. each Sunday morning with a host of other opportunities to develop a godly community to learn and to grow. We'll see you next week on the New Life Baptist Church podcast.